0: And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself there is no other commandment greater than these and the scribe said to him you are right teacher you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So this passage leads us to the second in our series of messages during Lent where we're looking at seven questions that every Christian ought to be able to answer. This question is, what matters most? What's the most important thing? And that's what we're going to talk about now. Jesus is pretty well laid it out for you. And when he was asked, it was not meant to trip him up. This is a different situation than typically happened with Jesus. We have many records of Jesus being tested by the Pharisees and the Sadducees with tough questions that they thought they could condemn him for answering incorrectly. But this one was asked with sincerity by a person who was looking for truth and with love and grace Jesus expressed the truth to him and this man interpreted it wisely which is beautiful this is a beautiful thing Jesus answered by first quoting something that every Jew knows by heart and even Jews who are marginal in their practices of faith today Know these words because this is a phrase that is used over and over again as a part of daily life and ritual for committed Jews. It is something called the Shema, and it comes from the book of Deuteronomy, and it goes like this Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of the houses and gates. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is a phrase called the Shema that every Jew would recite, and still to this day they do. In fact, if you go to the home of an Orthodox Jew or even a pretty marginal uh, Jew, you will most likely find something on the doorpost of their home called a Mesuzah. A Mesuzah is a little decorative tube or container that has a scroll in it with these words that you just heard on the scroll in Hebrew. This was a way of acknowledging this passage in a literal way. This, this mesousa is on the door. In fact, in strictest custom, it'll even be tilted towards Israel. So whichever way your house faces or your door faces, they'd even slant it towards Israel, towards Jerusalem to be specific. And when a person walks into their home, they would touch that thing. And then they would touch their head and their heart as a reminder that the word of God, sometimes it touched their lips. And the idea is that the word of God would be in their mind and on their lips and in their heart. And so it's just a symbol that reminded people to keep this, this covenant to Remember the truths about God. Maybe you've even seen in a big city or someplace like Israel, Orthodox Jews who wear these little brown boxes on their forehead and on their left arm. Those are called phylacteries. These are are an ancient tradition that, that I don't even know how it started, to be honest with you, but it's really just a literal interpretation of this passage. They are literally taking this leather box with straps on it that has in it a scroll written in Hebrew with the words we just read. And then again, the box on their arm is the same. And the idea is, is that they're literally putting it on their foreheads and they're putting it on their left arm. And you know that we do the left arm for the same reason you wear your wedding band on your left arm, your left hand, because even people who didn't know much much about anatomy knew that this arm had a little bit closer distance to the heart than the right arm. And so for that reason, they wear it on the left so they're saying the Word of God is in my mind and it's in my heart and so this is in fact why I call my teaching that I do outside of the church holiness of heart and mind knowing God with heart and mind because it's the same concept John Wesley believed that it was important that we not only engage God spiritually but intellectually that God created our mind and it was good to engage the mind so this is a really foundational principle And this goes all the way back to the earliest days of the Old Testament, to the law of Moses. This was simply a summary of the law of Moses that was being stated in a summary sentence. But but here's where Jesus really turned it up. I mean, he put the Old Testament answer out there, and then he added a New Testament icing for the cake. Because he said something that wasn't there. He said, love your neighbor. As yourself care as much about your neighbor as you do yourself that was a Jesus thing so we have him saying the most important thing is the Old Testament Shema and the New Testament Jesus said love your neighbor as yourself so Jesus gave the perfect answer and this wise Pharisee recognized it for that and even interpreted it wisely to say, doing these things is more important than sacrifices. Going through the motions doesn't mean anything unless there's a holiness of heart and mind associated with it. Now, this, like I said, is a summary statement of the Law of Moses, and the Law of Moses, as you probably know, starts with the 10 Commandments. That's what we call them. The Ten Commandments. The truth is, is the ancient language would describe them more as principles. And there aren't actually ten principles, but five principles. And I'm going to show you that here in a minute. One of the ways I know that there are five principles is because of something that I think is sort of funny in the Bible There's a lot of funny stuff in the Bible, by the way. But one of the funny things that I see in the Bible is is we know that Moses was somewhere between 80 and 100 years old when he went up on Mount Sinai to meet with God. He's between 80 and 100 years old. Is there anyone here, you don't have to raise your hand, who's 80 to 100 years old? Would you climb a mountain in the first place? And if you got to the top of the mountain and God said, I've got these two monstrous stones I'd like you to carry down to the people. Don't break them. I mean, if God really was sympathetic towards Moses' age, you think he would have used a smaller font type or something and put it all on one simple-to-carry stone. But he doesn't. He uses large print because he wants everybody to read it. And he puts it on two stones because there are, in fact, two parts to one law. There's five principles and five of the commandments are on one stone and the other five on the other. And we're gonna look at this in just a second and see how these five principles bring us back around to what Jesus says is the most important. The first principle then is the first commandment and the sixth commandment. So commandment one is on stone A, commandment six is on stone B, And this is what they say, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then commandment six says, you shall not murder. Now both are saying something about our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. By the way, does anybody see the letter I'm making? This will be handy when we get to the end of the message, because remember, we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's vertical, and it's horizontal. Get it? Now, we're supposed to remember that God thought they were so invaluable, so precious, that they were worth taking out of slavery. Okay? He said, understand this. I am the Lord your God and I took you out of slavery in Egypt well, there's a couple of things you need to know about slavery in Egypt. First of all, the Egyptians kept them like, like farm animals. They kept them like, like plow horses. They kept them in comfortable housing and they fed them every day and they gave them everything they needed to do their job. They were literally just animals that were being used like machines to accomplish ends for the Egyptians that's why it was so devastating when they were tested by having to find their own straw for their bricks their keepers were just giving them whatever they required in order to get the labor out of them they were not viewed as human beings at all they weren't treated like human beings look at slavery in America and you can see the same thing they're not treated like human beings the other thing you need to know is is that When God and Pharaoh are going at it, it's a huge battle between forces of darkness and evil and the God of all creation, the Lord of all righteousness. Now, I could get into that with you in a different way, but it would take away from the message I want to share today. Just understand this. I promise you that during Moses' day, the Pharaohs wore funny-looking hats because that's the shape of their head, too. (laughs) They They were some creepy dudes, okay? And there was some real evil going on. I'll give you a hint. If you're wondering why I'm so sure about that, look at the story of Moses and Aaron standing before uh, the Egyptian pharaoh. And Moses turns his staff into a serpent. And then look at how the priests of pharaohs turn their staffs into serpents. And then Moses' serpent consumes the other three. Well, here is what happened in the garden we heard that Adam and Eve were approached by Satan who came in the form of a serpent the word that we use to describe the serpent is a word called Nahash. it's a word that describes something more like a dragon and it is a unique word that doesn't occur very often in scripture at all and it always refers to the embodiment of Satan guess what Moses created a serpent with the help of God Pharaoh's priests created Nahash, demons in other words there's something really spooky about the Egyptians that Moses is leading the people away from keep that in the back of your head be glad to talk to you about that on a Wednesday night or something like that because it's great fun to really see how many bizarre and amazing things there are in Bible that explain better than logic how things played out what I want you to understand is, is that God says in the first commandment I am the Lord your God not those gods of Egypt remember how he led them out he defeated all of the gods of Egypt and then he defeated Pharaoh face to face taking Pharaoh's own son this is an indication to people who have forgotten who they are and where they come from that their God is the God. And so God's first commandment to the freed people Is remember I am God and I delivered you from slavery and here's why because you're worth more than that because you're more valuable to me than you are to the Egyptians the false gods of the Egyptians enslaved you and treated you like cattle and they don't care about you I am your God, your creator, your heavenly father and I brought you out of slavery to sin, to Satan and death When you understand that, then you understand that the Sixth Commandment says you shall not murder. Why does it say that? Because human life is precious. Because God says human life matters. Your lives mattered when you were slaves in Egypt and they still matter now. Everyone's life is important and significant. And no one has the authority to treat another human being as low as though they're not worth it as though they're inferior in some way. God is putting murder right up there with why he delivered his people from sin and death. Satan's a murderer. Do you understand that? Satan brought death into the world. He murdered God's people by teaching them to sin against God. The second principle doesn't take as long to explain and it's a lot more direct. Commandment 2 And commandment seven, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. And you shall not commit adultery. Think about it. It's not that hard to make sense of this principle. God says, first principle, I'm God. I've proven it. There's no other God but me. God is the one. Therefore, in order to really betray God, go ahead and hear that and then make false gods and worship them. Isn't that essentially the same thing as committing adultery? Isn't your relationship with God routinely described in the Old Testament and the New Testament as like a marriage covenant? Look at the book of Hosea this is one of the funniest bizarre like made for TV plots in the Bible Hosea is a prophet of God and God says okay Hosea here's what I want you to do I want you to go down to the temple brothel I want you to get one of the professional prostitutes and I want you to marry her and oh by the way she's gonna cheat on you because that's what she does <laughs> I mean Hosea's is like uh, could I pick someone else Country girls are nice. Could I go get a farm girl? <laughs> you know, and, and, and Hosea's got to marry this woman. And he does as he's told, and of course she betrays him. But he loves her. He can't help how much he loves her. And he just keeps this irresistible love going for her. And she keeps betraying him. And God says, now people, do you understand what it's like to be me? To have you... Call upon me every time you want me to rescue you from trouble, but then you turn to false gods. You betray me. You commit adultery with false gods. That's exactly what God means. And so it shouldn't surprise us that on Tablet 1, which is about our relationship with God, and Tablet 2, which is about our relationship with each other, God puts adultery right there, straight across the line. Because to commit adultery in a marriage Is like committing adultery with God it's God considers that covenant sacred God considers the marriage covenant sacred and he considers the relationship between God and God's people sacred it's a covenant it's it's a covenant is just a a word more used in the Bible than anywhere else that describes a contract it's binding but here's what you need to understand we put false gods before our God, all the time. Even though he strictly prohibits it, we do. Now, you probably don't have any idols in your house. Most of us probably don't have any sort of pagan idols. But what we do have are things that keep us from giving ourselves entirely to God the Father. We have stuff That binds us and prevents us from going all the way to where God waits with open arms for us and our things become false gods given a choice on a sunny morning in the spring for the first sunny Sunday in a long time should I give God worship or should I go play around to golf or go fishing or something like that should I should I stay in bed while my husband's off playing golf and just relax and take it easy and and who's the God who's more important at that moment you or the Lord that's what this means it's a it's a clear statement that putting other things ahead of God is to in effect commit adultery in your relationship with God Now, I probably don't have to say anything about human marriage, but I think it bears repeating. If you break the marriage covenant, you are committing adultery. Now, if that literally translates into a marriage-type relationship with someone who you're not married to, then yeah, that's adultery. But it's far worse than that and far easier to sin against your marital partner when you realize that in the same way that you betray the relationship with God, you can betray your relationship with your marriage partner, with your spouse. After all, if things are more important than them, aren't you betraying the marriage covenant? Aren't you creating a false marital partner in the way that you create a false God? This is hard to hear and hard to practice because, because most of us probably aren't guilty of literal adultery, but many of us can be guilty of putting selfish needs ahead of the relationships that are most important in our lives, which are the marriage relationships. Now, if you're not married, this is the kind of marriage you should be shooting for. One that's intended to last forever. One that's going to require a great deal of commitment regardless of the cost. And the truth is, is if you want to really live out for the sake of his name, the kind of relationship with God that you desire, then you have to practice it in your individual relationships. In other words, you can tell a lot about how someone feels about God by the way they treat people. You want to measure a person's relationship with God, it's pretty easy to do if you pay attention to how they relate to other people. Because the top and the side go together. Your relationship with God directly affects your relationship with each other. And if you only focus on your relationship with God, then you're just like the Pharisees who were threatened by Jesus because he invited sinners to eat with him. The relationship with God is expressed best in your relationship with each other. The third commandment says you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain and the eighth commandment says you shall not steal. Once again, one principle, two tablets. The first one says, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. How many times have you used the Lord's name in vain in your life? Well, it's a trick question because we were raised, most of us, by parents who told us, don't talk like that. Don't say the Lord's name in vain. And we thought it meant something like a bad word. Well, the truth is, it's far more of a sin to use the name of the Lord frivolously. It's far more of a sin to use the word of the Lord frivolously. When, when God speaks, things happen. God spoke and nothing turned into something. You see, when God speaks, storms stop. Dead come back to life. Sight is restored. Cripples are healed. When God speaks, it's powerful stuff. And to use God's name frivolously is to take the Lord's name in vain. But do you know what else has taken the Lord's name in vain? Telling all your friends that you're a Christian and that you belong to a church, but you don't give anything to the church except for a little time, a couple of times a year. I'm sorry, but that's taking the Lord's name in vain too. See, anytime you put God behind yourself, which we call talking about false gods, but you still claim the name of Jesus. Do you think that it's reasonable to expect God to give you things When you give nothing to God. Now, trust me, I understand the gospel says we can't do anything to earn it. But do you think it's fair to claim the name of the Lord without living like that means something to you? Now, this is scary, I know. But think about what we're saying here. Because the Lord puts that on equal terms with stealing. Stealing. In other words, if you take something away from God, what are you taking away from God? What are you stealing from God when you take his name in vain? You're stealing God's glory. You're stealing God's identity. We know what identity theft is in these days. The people in this era that this was written, they they never heard of identity theft. But you know what identity theft is. Heck, it was just, just popped into my mind just this minute. My staff can tell you that at least four times in the last two and a half years, they've received emails from somebody claiming to be me, trying to trick them into giving them money or send them a gift card code or something like that, and the person was pretending to be me. Someone stole my identity and tried to trick my closest friends into doing something that would turn out to be theft. I was rather troubled by that. In fact, I was ticked off. It is no fun to have somebody steal your glory and more than that, to steal your name and then use it in a way that is inappropriate according to who you are. (laughs) I just, I was, just uh, Katrina, where are you? There you are. I was just talking to the Gadlages after the second service and I was telling them about how we had one member of their household's phone number off by one digit Consequently, we were sending church text messages to someone who was not nice. And every time they said something not nice in to reply to one of our texts, I mean, all you had to do is say stop. But they didn't. They said what we could do with our lilies and things. And the funny part was, is it was in the name of someone we knew would never do that. We knew this couldn't be that person. So we did some research and found out where the error was. But isn't it funny how someone's name can be misused and it causes a terrible injury to the reputation of the person. Fortunately, my staff, my friends, they know me and they recognize the plot right away. They said, oh, that's not Dan, he doesn't operate that way. It's really important to be consistent in your character because that may come and all the way around and save you a lot of grief or the people you care about a lot of grief. God is saying his name matters. Don't misuse it. Don't misrepresent it. You should care about churches up the road or down the road who are having a hard time because their pastor has fallen from grace in some way or because their members or one of their staff has done something like embezzlement or something like that. You should care about that. You should pray about that. You should ask for God's mercy because God's name's being put on the line there. All these people who don't know how they feel about God assume that God's a real jerk because so many Christians are jerks. Think about it. Don't take God's name in vain. If you claim to be a Christian, act like it. That's the point that this is making because to do anything less is to steal from God. It's just like going to work and not doing your work. You go to work and you piddle around and goof off and you don't accomplish what the boss is paying you to accomplish. You're stealing from your boss. Plain and simple, that's theft. This is what God means when he says, don't take my name in vain because you're stealing from me. And that makes it pretty easy to understand why he put the human relationship part right there too. Don't steal. Don't take something that doesn't belong to you. My name is mine, you're not allowed to use it to trick my friends into giving you money. Don't steal. Principle four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all the work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And then the counter piece across from it, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. This one's pretty remarkable if you think about it, because again, God's saying, remember the Sabbath and don't lie. Well, here's the funny thing. You know, there are people right now who are trying to convince the world that God doesn't exist by promoting ideas like evolution, for example. And I'm talking about evolution as a religion because there's people that are religiously devoted to the idea of evolution, even though they can't stand behind it in a a sort of intellectually uh, integral way. But the point I'm trying to make is, is people are trying all the time to figure out how to prove that God doesn't exist. People are spending money, millions of dollars on billboards to tell you that God doesn't exist because I guess it's important to them to make you know that God doesn't exist like they believe. But I almost wonder if they aren't just trying to convince themselves. And here's something that's really amazing. God is present and visible every day, even in the most cold-hearted, atheist heart because if you or I were starting a universe and a whole new creation and we made a planet called earth and it had 365 cycles that uh revolved around the sun and the days of the earth's turning and the movements of the moon and all of that we could construct a week in any form we want we could say I oh, we're not even gonna have weeks We could just have day one and then day 365, and if anybody says, well, what day are we meeting for the church service? And you'd say, "Uh, we're going to meet on day 11, day 21, day 31, you know, and you could do that if you want, right? But what do we do? We have Monday through Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and that's exactly what God said back at the beginning. Even the most cold-hearted atheist has to acknowledge that there are seven days in a week just as God ordered it. And so the Sabbath can be about what you do or don't do on that sacred day, but it also says something about the nature of God. It says that God will not be challenged, that God's identity is secure, and some things are not negotiable. And even a hateful, devil-driven, sinful, atheistic world can't deny God because we have this solar calendar of seven days a week. It's an amazing thing when you think about it. And if you take it over to giving false testimony, what you understand is, is you can lie about God, but only to a certain degree. There's only so much you can say about God that isn't true without having to pay for lying about God. And what does it say about human relationships? Truth matters. Truth matters whether we're talking about God or whether we're talking about each other. And when God says that you will not bear false witness, you will not lie about other people. It's because lies hurt people. Because lies cause pain. And what God is saying plainly and simply here is, is don't lie. Tell the truth. If you don't know what the truth is, shut up. You know there's an awful lot of pain that happens in organizations because people talk too much without knowing what they're talking about. That's a lie. We don't like black and white explanations for it, but when you say things that you don't know are true, you could be lying. When you gossip, when you, when you opine about something that you find frustrating or disappointing or whatever, but you really don't know what you're talking about, then how is that any different than bearing false witness? An awful lot of pain comes. Remember how I said a few weeks ago that if you want to know where God is is, is at work, you look for order or cosmos. And if you want to see where the devil's at work, you look for chaos. If your words cause chaos, you're breaking this commandment. Do you see that? If you embrace and embody chaos, if you help to create chaos, if you get a kick out of stirring the pot just to see what kind of stink comes up, you're creating chaos which makes you a violator of this principle not to bear false witness to deny the sabbath that is what is sacred if you deny what is sacred which is god's nature and the truth then you're bearing false witness you see that here two big heavy stones that old moses had to lug down the hill because it was that important that people recognize it the last principle the lord requires us to honor father and mother and do not covet your neighbor's wife or any of your neighbor's stuff. Do you notice that the relationship with father and mother is on the same tablet as the other things that have to do with your relationship with God? And the coveting thing is over on the other side where our relationship with people is concerned? I know that some people don't have much good to say about their parents, but you You're still beholden to them because you wouldn't be here without them. Some people have had absolutely atrocious parenting. Some people are adopted and their adoptive parents are absolutely wonderful. But at the end of the day, what God says is your relationship with what precedes you, what gives you life is sacred. And it bears a certain degree of respect and that is not negotiable. It's over on the love God with all your heart, mind, and soul column because it's not negotiable. Your parents deserve a certain respect, if only in your thought. If you don't owe them anything else, you at least owe them for your life. Because without mom and dad, you wouldn't be here. Do you understand that? And do you understand, especially if you're a parent, that that's a pretty sacred promise that God is requiring of the child. Therefore, it's something the parent needs to live up to. If God requires the child to give me what I'm due, then it goes without saying that I have to give my child what my child is due. I need to be somebody my, parents, my kids can look up to. And where I fail, they need to be people who understand God's grace so that they can forgive me for not being perfect. Just as I've had learned, forgive my parents for things they did because of their imperfections. Honor your mother and father because it's a lot like honoring God. We don't always understand our parents or what made them do or not do the things that we witnessed and didn't witness. But at the end of the day, that doesn't change who they are. We don't always understand our relationship with God, but that doesn't change who God is. God never changes. God is the same yesterday, today, and always. And so in the same way, God requires us not to covet things that we're not owed. There's a little difference here. This is not like, this is not like stealing. Stealing is the assumption that what's yours is mine and I can take it. This one's about how you think about other people and their things. You can't take away from your parents what is theirs. You can't deny that your parents existed because you wouldn't be here if your parents didn't also exist. You can't deny your parents, and in the same way, you can't take what they are away from them. You can't rob your parents of their identity. And in the same way, you can't rob others of what they have or what makes them unique. To put it another way, coveting your your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's property or your your neighbor's lifestyle is envy and it means that you have this deep-seated dissatisfaction with your life. You're complaining because your parents weren't any good. You're complaining because the neighbors got it better than you do. You're complaining because his wife's better looking than your wife. Her husband is better to her than, than uh, the other husband. And, and you're complaining because they have nicer things than you do. You're dissatisfied with your life and you're dissatisfied with your parents. Do you see the problem? You've got an attitude problem. So the fifth principle is get over yourself, lose the attitude and make the most of what you've been given. You see that? We're full circle now, and this one took a while, and I apologize, but I hope you've been fed. The answer to the question then, what matters most, is exactly what Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what matters most. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts for your name's sake so that we can love you with all our heart, mind, and soul and teach us to represent you well by loving our neighbor so that everything we say is true about you in our lives is evident in the way that we relate to each other. Amen.